everyone. My name is Bill Santer, and I'm on the Spark team leading our business development efforts. This is a special episode of Spark.Grow, and this conversation features Dave Haviland of Fimation, chatting with Anne-Marie Sastry, founder of Amosite, uh, an education tech startup during Tech Trek. We call these conversations live during Tech Trek and wanted to release them individually. So this is recorded live in front of an audience at the Ann Arbor District Library. Uh, you'll get an overview of Anne-Marie's background during the conversation with Dave, uh, but she is the founder of Amosite. Uh, she started her career in Michigan as a professor, started a company called SACD3, which she ultimately sold to Dyson a few years ago, now working on uh, really bringing higher ed up to speed on how they can use technology to connect the best ways with their students. So enjoy. Uh, so thank you all for being here for a live edition of the Spark.Grow podcast. I'm Dave Haviland, and uh, we're at the Ann Arbor District Library, as always, but we have a nice big stage for the celebrity that we have as a guest, Anne-Marie Sastry. Thank you for joining us. I was looking around <laughs> to see where the celebrity was. <laughs> <laughs> you're it. So um, Anne-Marie, tell, uh, tell us about the company that you're working with now. Amosite is a company that uh, was founded in late 2017, and uh, we closed some financing, hired a team, and now we're a team working in Ann Arbor, Michigan to really revolutionize higher education. We think that uh, with student debt standing at about $1.4 trillion, 70% of undergraduates working more than 30 hours a week, and really the, the very pressing need for all professionals to be continuously educated, that it's time for an AI-driven platform, one that operationalizes a lot of the more mundane parts of being a professor in favor of allowing faculty members to interact more with students and then also using AI technologies to make the experience in general more engaging. How did you, so, so is that an idea that has been, um that's been developing in your interest and in your career over time, or is this, how did you, how did you end up uh, starting the company? I saw a number of needs that seemed to converge into a business idea. And at first I thought it was simply an organizational idea. I saw some things happening in education wherein I thought education was not advantaged by technology in the same way that music was advantaged with Spotify and Pandora and shopping was advantaged with Amazon and Shopify and, and other platforms really made doing mundane things much easier and much more engaging. And it seemed like academia didn't have that technology advantage. And as with those fields, what happened was somebody built a company and said, hey, I'm, I'm gonna provide this platform and all of a sudden uh, making a playlist uh, became possible with your thumb while you're multitasking, doing something else with your other hand. Shopping became a single click. And a lot of other things in life became a lot easier. And in America, we've seen the last four years in a row dropping enrollments in college. And this is a deep concern to me, having been an educator and, and very strongly um, supportive of educational opportunities. So it seemed like there was a technology answer and at first, I, I did pretty well in my last company. I thought, well, maybe I'll do this as a charitable uh, exercise because we, we like to help out. Um, but it became clear that it was too expensive. We needed to, I needed to build something that could be sustainable and uh, be in partnership with colleges and universities so that we could, again, be the technology provider and they could do what they did. And I thought, and that, that seems to be working pretty well. Wow. 
Uh, and talk about the journey that got you there. So what's come before Amosite? A uh, bunch, bunch of things. <laughs> I, uh, let's see. I, when I was uh, very young, I worked at DuPont when I was a kid in college and then went off to graduate school at Cornell and then well, worked and programmed on the big Cray at Sandia National Labs, was a numericist as an artisan, and uh, then left that position as a senior member of technical staff to take a faculty position at University of Michigan. Uh, and I consulted uh, while I was a professor, too, mm -hmm. to stay current and get to work on new technologies, but I was really more known as a researcher. I started two large research centers. I started a graduate program because I've always been uh, very committed and a big fan of clean tech, and especially electric vehicles. And so the problem at that time was uh, there weren't enough people to execute on the technology, so I decided to start a graduate program, and that became mm -hmm. very successful. Um, and the research centers were great fun, uh, but then um, it seemed like a stopping point for EVs was better batteries, and the advances weren't coming fast enough and furiously enough. So I uh, had some success in some simulations that uh, a colleague and I were doing, uh, Dr. Chai Wei Wang, and we um, uh, started to make some prototypes. The first ones worked. Weirdly, <laughs> and, uh, and one of them was even in my garage using a spray can of um, zinc spray, and so we wow. got a, we got a voltage on that thing and thought, Eureka! We got, well, <laughs> not nine years later, yeah. it was a, it was an overnight success. But anyway, so we started a company, and that was a hardware business. So we built that company and brought people in, very smart people, worked very hard, and then uh, ended up selling that company to Dyson because. Dyson was going to build an electric car. So that was a, a very nice uh, coda to that story that we sold, I sold that company mm -hmm. to a company that actually wanted to put solid state batteries in the right. cars and Dyson was gonna put a billion dollars in the technology and that's up and running. And then after a little bit of time at Dyson, I was there a couple, three years, uh, decided that that thing was up and running. All of my former students that I had started that business with were running the business, doing very well, hiring, and they're still located in Ann Arbor. Uh, decided to do my next thing and return to education, but this time from the perspective of bringing technology to it mm -hmm. rather than directly being a professor again. There's a couple of parts of that story that I want to follow up on. First is, I think you said I was a numericist as an artisan. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Uh, That's fascinating. That, just those words sound fascinating. So what does uh, that mean? I, I was interested in numerical methods. I was interested in uh, applied mathematics, mm -hmm. and I had coding jobs, and so I wrote code. Uh, but the code was really around physics. So the code was uh, to solve physics problems through mathematics and encoding solutions uh, yep. using, at the time, were some of the most advanced computers in the world. Mm -hmm. And in that position, I worked uh, mostly by myself, although I was a member of teams. And we um, each had a role on the team, but really uh, what I remember about that work and really a lot of what I did in graduate school, you, you sort of sit under a tree and write a math paper. Yeah. And you talk with other people to figure out is this the right problem to solve or am I doing the right piece of it? But the, the conversation is, is really one that artisans have among our other artisans. Mm -hmm. And then um, as I would go on, I would, I would start organizations and then you know, your life changes instead of being a, a person that can know what your instrument is, there's a tape deck on the floor and you stand here and you do this, then you sort of have to figure out where everybody else should stand and how they need to move around in order for the, for the team to make an impact. So. Yeah, and um, what was the decision like to start SACT3 and the, the company there? You had the technology, you were doing the research, was it, was it a natural path for you to want to start the company or was that a big change and, and you had to do a lot of uh, soul searching for it? 
I didn't do a lot of soul searching. Probably, probably not enough. I mean, uh, a, a lot of people told me, you know, you're probably going to fail here. Um, my reaction is probably. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, but it's better to fail at something important than it is to be successful at something trivial in my book. So, I wasn't too worried about that, and there was no lightning bolt like, oh my gosh, I'll just start a company and everything will be great. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think. If I look back at the things I said, I think I was very consistent. It's like, okay, we, we may fail, and yeah. we may work 100 hours a week at this thing, and we may fail anyway, but that's okay. Um, because I mean, it's not wonderful, but that's okay because the problem is very good. It, it turned out that we would be successful, um, but I don't think there was some moment where it was, okay, now I'm an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Now I know how to do this. Actually, when you start something, you enter a realm of greater uh, uncertainty mm -hmm. and every day becomes more uncertain. So if you're not comfortable with that, it's not a great idea to start a company. <laughs> but if you're comfortable with that, it is. Right. Um, where is your time and attention going these days in the in the work that you're doing now? It's it's. I think you get this answer from most people who start new organizations. Every place, you know, there's there's no one thing. You, you tend to be uh, with the people in the organization that need you the most, where you can be mm -hmm. most helpful. Usually you're doing something, if you're doing it right, that you don't exactly know how to do because nobody knows how to do it. And that's great fun. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to do only exactly what is known, probably being an entrepreneur is maybe not the greatest fit. Right. Uh, but if, if you like being challenged and you like problem solving in teams, uh, it's a great way to live. So, so how do you manage... Um being spread and doing all those kinds of things with um, maybe needing to focus occasionally in certain areas in order to in order to drive results. I get up very very early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> More time. That I makes get sense. Up very early in the morning, and I, I I talk to a lot of people who who do. I get up very early in the morning so I can collect my thoughts mm. when it's quiet, and um, try to make sure that by the time I'm interacting with other people that I at least can contextualize and hopefully help create a plan and help get, get them where they need mm -hmm. to be. Yeah. So you get your thoughts together. Is that a regular routine? Absolutely. Is it every day? Yeah, or, every yeah. day. Yeah. Um, you are the leader of the company. What does leadership mean to you? You know, it's cliche, but you need everybody to lead in their area. Mm -hmm. um, to me, leadership means being in service of the greater goals of the team because you've got it. Whatever your thing is, you've got it. And uh, one of the things I coach in my own teams is that everyone on team has the veto authority over the work of the enterprise. Mm. It, it doesn't matter whether you're the lead scientist, it doesn't matter whether you're the HR person, it doesn't matter whether you're the custodian. Everybody needs to do their job, and I always use the plural and grammar to avoid right. offending on uh, pronoun or making mistakes. So everybody has to do their job in order for the organization to move ahead. And I don't, I don't coach too much on you know, respect everybody, love everybody. I, I try to put it in the correct context, which is if you think somebody's unimportant, you're not paying attention, mm -hmm. or you're staffed wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody has a role to play if you're staffed right, and so. Um, what does leadership means? It means using what's happening in your part of the organization to be in service to everybody else's needs. Yeah. I think you said that part of your job is mentoring. So what are you trying to instill about leadership in the people that you're mentoring? The first, the first thing is kind of obvious. It's golden rule. 
know, having empathy is very important. Golden rule is a good exercise in, in advanced empathy. Um, really turning things around and thinking, what does the organization need from me? What do my colleagues need from me? Uh, rather than thinking about, I'm just in my box doing my thing. At the end of the day, I'm going to toss my result over the cubicle wall, and that's it. Um, and especially entrepreneurial teams. There's a, there's a high, high, high degree of codependence. Mm -hmm. And so um, really coaching, um, being respectful, and being uh, showing a high degree of empathy. What does your hiring process look like um, given the performance expectations that you have of the team? We have discussions on context a lot. You know, what is the context of this role? What kind of a person, what kind of a, a, an outlook does this person need to have? Uh, one of our one of our values at Amosite is judgment over rules. Uh, mm. We don't want people to get their shoelaces tied together because Rule 14.B.6 in the employee manual says you have to do it this way. I mean that's silly. We hire smart people, and uh, we we invite smart people to join the team. Right. And so we want to hear from them. You know what what needs to happen, not have people reciting rules. On the other hand, there are some positions where it, where it needs to be rules over judgment. Mm. My last business was a hardware company. And you have to have a safety culture. Uh. You have to be rules over judgment when it comes to handling hazardous materials. You mm. cannot afford to make a mistake because people's lives are at stake and people's health and well-being is at stake. So not all organizations are going to have the same values or tenets or, or mottos and what have you. And that's good. Mm. It, it's worth it to sit down and think about what does my organization do and what are the values that are going to provide context to people in their jobs so that, so that they can execute. Yeah. How and, and how often are you reinforcing those values? Hopefully every day. Okay. Um, we, we try, uh, or I try, I should say, to, to make sure they're not mock-worthy. Uh, you know, I, I try not to make sure they're not Soviet work posters or something. You know, we <laughs> sit down and ask people, does, what does this value mean to you? Does it make sense? Our graphic artists made beautiful posters of our values and, mm -hmm. and put them in, in the largest room in the company. And we look at them. Uh, when we evaluate things we've written, uh, sometimes a staff member, very frequently actually a staff member will, you know, re recite one of the values and say, this is how this fits or this is how this doesn't fit. Um, and that's really important. Just having a bunch of words on the wall doesn't mean anything. Uh, but, but again, every time you make a key decision, evaluating that against your company's values, it sounds a bit trite. I think it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. How many values do you have? Uh, eight. Okay. And... Um, you talked about making important decisions. Can you, can you talk about what the decision-making process looks like in your company? Yes. Um, when we execute changes on the platform, so we're a technology platform, we ask questions around what does this mean to the user? Uh, how does the user feel when they read a, a notification from us? Does it make them feel anxious? Does it help them execute? Uh, does it make their lives easier? Mm -hmm. Does it make sense given that, you know, as, as I mentioned, 70% of undergrads are working more than 30 hours a week. Do they really want to tisk tisk in the middle of the week when the reality is they might not be able to log onto the platform until mm -hmm. Friday at 7 o'clock or Saturday at 7 in the morning to do all their assignments by Sunday at midnight? Is that, is that reasonable? Uh, inevitably, we come to the conclusion, no, it's not reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, not, we're not trying to weed people out. We're trying to invite people in. We're trying to help build a platform under people so they can get an education. And so we really evaluate the language we use, the colors we use, the, the graphic design that we use, uh, how we contact people, uh, what words we use, mm. et cetera. 
Um, I'm guessing that with the amount of time that you spend on um, managing the organization and managing the culture and things like that, that you don't have, you avoid hard decisions that other companies might ha might struggle with, but I'm sure you still have hard decisions. Of course. So, so what happens or how do you handle those decisions when they are, when they're contentious, when there's conflict, when, it, when it's one of the harder decisions that the organization needs to make? I don't view my job as issuing edicts. I review my job as uh, nearly constantly writing rough drafts, mm -hmm. almost constantly. Almost constantly writing rough drafts and providing context for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Before any big decision, I have probably a, a, an unusually high degree of collaboration. Uh, bring a, a, an all-hands meeting or the key staff in and say, what do you think of this? But uh, I don't think my job is to you know, carve things into a, a tablet and say, here, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. I don't think that's a good practice. Yeah. Uh, I know that I can't imagine the feedback that I'm going to get. That's why you hire. That's why you invite smart people to join your team. So yeah. you ask for, for input. Um, I would say uh, my personal style is I err on the side of more communication rather than less communication on team. Um, but you know, obviously, there are different ways to do it. Um. Is erring on the side of more communication unusual, do you know, compared to other leaders? So I've been told I am very strongly on that side, mm -hmm. that, that um, right. typically people don't get surprised by things. They kind of know which direction things are going. They have input. But uh, I, I think entrepreneurial organizations are, are really are snowflakes. Um, mm -hmm. th there's so much of the founding team's personality mm -hmm and the unique admixture of views and mission and goals and values and so forth that uh, I don't think, I don't know that I've seen a typical startup. Right. Um, you have worked in a number of areas bringing innovation. How can you tell when an area needs innovation or when it's, when it's starved for innovation? When you, the, the, I think the easiest way to tell uh, or to, to sense that an area is ripe for innovation is that there's a resounding agreement on what is going to happen. Hmm. At that moment, there's not going to be that thing. <laughs> it just isn't. When everybody agrees, uh, that, that's, that's usually a good sign that something strange is going to happen. Uh -huh. And particularly when people agree that something negative is inevitable. Uh, hmm. Entrepreneurs are nothing but optimists. And so when everyone has sort of strenuously agreed this is a trend that will not reverse itself. Mm -hmm. Humanity is headed for a brick wall at 80 miles an hour. I think that's the moment where you, where you can be sure that entrepreneurs will, will sweep mm -hmm. in and people will innovate uh, in order to attack the problem. It's almost a call to arms. Is that happening or how is that happening with higher education today? I think, uh, you know, my, my belief is based on uh, media reports, think tank reports, reports from higher ed, uh, and also public opinion polls, that people know that there is something deeply wrong with access in higher education. It's really simple. If things were working well, more people would be going to college, right? We're a rich country and the economy's booming. Why aren't more people going to college? And you can argue that maybe the economy so good people would rather go to work, but if you look at the uh, accumulated wealth among millennials versus Gen X or baby boomer, that's not really supported by the data. So something else is going, going on here. And really, you know, we have a point of view at Amosite that a technology uh, injection can be very helpful in this to make academia, to help academicians and help the academy become more operationally mm -hmm. efficient, 
but still maintain that very high degree of interaction, engagement, and, and quality. Um, of course, without the right technology, anything else is going to be a diminution of the bricks and mortar experience. So we really think about what you can do with a platform that you can't do in the classroom. Hmm. And we try to bring that and, of course, uh, use the valuable time of instructors to allow them to directly engage with learners rather than do you know sort of more mundane things. Hmm. Um, it seems that innovation is at the core of the business that you're working in now. What's the hardest thing to get right about that, about innovation? I think there are a lot of hard things to get right about it. I, I think that college is one of those things, education is one of those things that virtually everybody has been educated to some significant degree in our country and significant being, you know, sort of at least to eighth grade or so, which is, which is not insignificant in, mm -hmm. you know, in view, from a historical point of view of our species. It's not insignificant. A lot of people who've experienced education. And as such, I think people think that there is a right way to do it. But all of these mm -hmm. other things happened while we were still delivering education the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, the internet happened. The World Wide Web happened. Commercial platforms happened. Uh, our attention uh, is in such short supply, and uh, there's a competition for attention. And the competition for attention is largely driven by people, uh, you know, by entities trying to sell us things, which is normal. This mm -hmm. is a capitalist country. So, so it's completely normal that the greatest efforts have been in getting people to buy goods and services. But less or fewer efforts have been spent in inducing people to learn something, hmm. it's just for its own sake. And so, I, I personally, I saw a disparity there, and given that education is a $1.9 trillion industry, it's a bigger industry in, in, by some metrics than healthcare or defense. Mm -hmm. So it's worth it to go in and say, let's go build a sustainable enterprise that just does that. Yeah. that, that we don't really need to monetize people's data. We really don't need to, to gather data and sell it to third parties or to allow other people to see the data. We really just want to provide this better shot at becoming educated, yeah. and that in itself is a, is a really great goal. Um, you clearly have done a lot of thinking about the environment and the market that you're in. You talked about contextualizing as one of the most important things that you do. Um, how often are you bringing that into the conversations that you're having about the product that you're developing? Multiple times a day. Okay, it's uh, constant. On, on team, we, we share news articles as well, as we did in my last company, every week we we picked out articles and shared them about what was going on in our industry, what was going on in uh, more generally in technology, hmm. uh, what were the things we needed to be thinking about. And I find that uh, people play up a league when you give them a shot. So hmm. when you ask someone, okay, your job may be computational scientist or your job may be uh, human resources or your job may be safety officer, but if given the chance to comment on, on a broader industry trend, uh, you may contribute something that nobody else would have thought of. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to I, I like to have those conversations. I like to provide an opportunity for that. Do you involve the company in creating the vision for the business, Absolutely. or is that more coming from you? Absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, the, I think on day one there is a vision. On day ten there's another vision. Hmm. On day one hundred there's another vision. Hopefully, there's been something so sort of fundamental and true on day one mm -hmm. that by day 100 or day 1,000 or day 10,000, it's a more fleshed out version of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the core values remain intact. But you know, clearly, as your capability grows, your vision can be bigger. 
vision on day one may be, uh, as it was with us, I just want some people to learn better. <laughs> I want to provide this right. and, and offer some courses at a reasonable uh, price point with, with great partners that allow people to learn better. And our, our vision has gotten more ambitious, as you know, ideally it always does when you start something. And is there a written document that is the vision? And if so, how often does that actually get updated? So when a team is small enough, I think it's totally okay to have kind of an oral history mm -hmm. and um, a, an informal vision statement. I think we have, a, we have a mission statement and we review it and sometimes we tweak it. But I think in terms of a broader vision, that gets fleshed out as you execute. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's right that you can say, well, here's going to be the vision of this organization, and we don't really need to pay attention to what we're doing because we have this vision. Right. Actually, the vision is influenced by the execution and vice versa. Yeah, and I've seen people actually have the vision distract them from what the market was telling them. Yeah. And so early on, you need to be listening to the market much more than you do focused on your vision. We do that and assiduously. and mm -hmm. and. You know, internally, we, we have on the staff our own focus group. Recent graduates comprise a great focus group for what education needs to do and where it needs to be. And we have folks on staff who work their whole way through college, mm -hmm. who have really great perspective and insight and advice for how we deliver that makes it more possible to get through uh, with low friction. Mm -hmm. um, no doubt. I, you're, you're in constant change, it sounds like. Do you think of change management as one of the hats that you wear, or, or is it just so infused in everything that you do that you don't actually think about the term change management? I, I, one, of our, one of our values is growth beats comfort. And so I really don't like to be comfortable or in a state of stasis. Uh, I don't really think of daily uh, growth spurts as change so much as evolution, mm -hmm. that that's what we anticipate. I see my job as providing context. Okay, we've been doing it this way for six weeks. Now we figured out how to do it. Now we're gonna hire a consultant or hire a new person and that's gonna be their job mm -hmm. because we don't, we're not in the figuring, figuring out, out phase anymore. And so that is always going on. And the, the general context is when we figure something out, it becomes a regular function. And then we bring in a person who does that, whether it's an inside person or a partner. Um, and then the specific context is, and now we're doing this in this area of the company. Now we're doing this in this area of the company. Do you hire for change over comfort? Is that part growth of- Growth over comfort? Growth over comfort. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when uh, we ask people to come and see whether they're a fit with us, we ask them, you know, what, what what is, and this is interview questions for anybody who comes in interviews at mm. Amosite, we're very transparent about that. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like the, you don't <laughs> like the question, probably don't come for the interview. If you do, please interview. Um, the, we ask, you know, what, what's a great day at the office? Is it mm. when you, you started with a big stack like this, and I'm holding my hands apart, and then you end up with a big stack, little stack like this, right. or is it when there's um, some liveliness during the day, mm -hmm. and you don't, you don't know exactly where we'll be uh, on a project by week's end, but we know that we're probably gonna be a lot further than we thought we would be. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the spirit. Mm -hmm. And um, there are different environments that are fits with different personalities. I'm, I'm not a person who knocks big organizations per se. Big organizations need to exist. They just do a different thing, mm -hmm. right? Organizations that are growth organizations, we have to bring in people who enjoy that, otherwise they won't be happy. Yeah. Um, do you do you occasionally have 
non-fits that you end up hiring and then you have to manage them out of the organization? Sure. Everybody does. I mean, everybody, everybody signs up for things that aren't a fit and everybody brings people in that aren't a fit. That's okay. Um, the nice thing now is that we're really at a, a very high employment economy mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people with a lot of different experiences and we've been able to bring people in that bring a lot of different experiences to the mm -hmm. company. So that's really fun. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes the only way to grow is to go do your next thing. So Right. Um, and and uh, what's your experience with the generational differences that we have in the workforce now? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, there, it's, almost a, it's, it's almost a cliche, uh, generational warfare, generational resentment. Right now, there are stereotypes about millennials, stereotypes about baby boomers. Right. I happen to be a Gen X, which is the generation everybody, we all, Forgotten, we're in the middle of right. <laughs> a smaller generation. But, but I think um, the, the the stereotypical things about millennials or any other generation often have their root in structural changes in mm -hmm. culture or economy that change behaviors. So if you look at the millennials as a generation, uh, for example, as as one example, uh, they criticized for getting you know, $8 cups of coffee. Well, in my generation, we went out and bought fancy cars, which right, is pr right. probably by most measures stupider, right? <laughs> I mean, every generation has their thing that they do. If you look at the economic forces that are buffeting the millennials, mm -hmm. student debt has got to be one of the, the primary effects. Uh, students are, you know, people are graduating college with staggering debt. Mm -hmm. And that really changes their immediate sort of next five year life decisions. Huh. Uh, which changes behaviors. And so I don't think it's fair to stereotype a generation uh, without looking at the economic context right. and cultural context. The, the social compact between companies and employees is also very different than it was when probably when you and I were coming mm -hmm. out of school. The Uberization, Liftization, the right. gig economy. It's a very different idea. And so it's not just from the perspective of the workforce saying, I don't want to be held to a certain job. A lot of very big companies, global, globally scaled companies are saying, you're not an employee, you're, you're a contractor. You have to invest in yourself and your own brand. You're going to be reviewed. This will not be a review of Uber. This will not be a review of Lyft. This will be a review of you, which in, in previous generations, someone wh who was on the workforce of a very large comp company at least had the comfort of being right. uh, branded to that company. So there are really big cultural changes that drive a lot of social media use mm. in a way that's not, I, I wouldn't say in any way a hobby, but it's vitally important professionally. Mm. So I think you have to pay attention to, to that and then go look at the characterization mm. or the characteristics and, and what you generally see is the characteristics follow Makes sense. the need. Right. Um, let's see. As you think about the uh, up-and-coming uh, managers that are in your business, what are you focused on for developing them? Well, I think the first thing to do is ask them what they need. Hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's too smart of an idea to just guess at people's needs all the time. I think it's better to keep an open channel of communication. Where do you feel comfortable? Where do you not feel comfortable? Hmm. What are the things this week or this month or this quarter or this year that you thought, I would have wanted to know something different? Um, Let's go out and have a coffee. Let's go out and have a lunch and talk about, you know, where you think the gaps are and, and, and what you need to fill in. Um, the other is feedback, which is, hey, I noticed you did this. This works for me. 
this, this often doesn't work for me. What works for you? What doesn't work for you? Mm -hmm. What were you trying to do here? What happened? And how can I help you uh, get to a place where you're comfortable? That sounds like the kind of conversation that you would have not on any kind of calendar or schedule, but just whenever it comes up. I'm a believer in that. I so I've over the over the last you know sort of course of my career, if you could call it a career. My husband says I have a series of missions, which yeah. is probably true. <laughs> but I I uh, I have done it both ways, um, done structured reviews and done more informal, and. I guess I was a professor for a long time, and I, I guess you can take the professor out of the university, but maybe the mm -hmm. reverse, not so much. I tend to think that more informal and teachable moments mm -hmm. are more important mm -hmm. than structured, because structured feedback uh, is, is helpful to make sure it happens, but in some sense, the anxiety level on both sides is mm -hmm. high for those kinds of interactions, and people are trying at the last minute to collect all the things that were important. Right. And I'm a believer that when something's going on, it's better to, to hit the pause button and have that discussion right then yeah. for, for maximum impact on both sides. What's been the hardest thing for you in being a leader? Uh, uh, the hardest thing for me. I would say the only thing that I find difficult is working on something that I think is solved. And that's a personality trait probably. Mm -hmm. I like to work on things that are either not solved mm -hmm. or difficult to solve. Uh, I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a feature of um, um, people who start things, I guess. Right. Uh, when things become very routine, I can keep myself corseted for a period of time mm -hmm. and say, yes, I will stay here and I will fill out this paperwork. But it's a, I would admit it's a struggle. It's, uh, it's easy for me to walk into a room filled with perfectly clean whiteboards and an unsolvable problem mm. and go tackle it. That, that is my happy place. Right, neat. Um, and all right, I think we're getting close to the time where we wrap it up. I would like to finish, well, first of all, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think would be interesting to talk about? Well, before we, we, we started this, I asked you what how people use these and, and mm -hmm. how to be most useful and maybe learning from other people. It, when they say it's, it's, smart, it's smart to learn from your own mistakes, it's brilliant to learn from others. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that people hesitate to start something sometimes mm -hmm. because they think it's going to be too hard or they think they might fail. And there's this sort of uh, saying that goes around, you know, what, what would you try if you knew you couldn't fail? Right. I think that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Right. I, I don't think anything is worth doing unless you think you might fail. Hmm. It's probably not hard enough. I mean, I think hmm. most of what's worth doing in your professional life particularly, uh, if it's worth doing, it has a chance of failure. And I think it's okay to just embrace that and say, okay, I'm going I'm to hit it anyway. You know, hmm. you drive the line, tongue hanging out of your mouth, and just you know, <laughs> go for it. Because the, the risk of failure is in some sense um, a necessary element of picking a problem that's hard enough. But if a problem is hard enough, chances are it's gonna have some impact if you get there. And mm -hmm. even if you don't get there, you might, you might blaze a path for somebody else to get there. Do you think it's easier or harder to get people attracted to a problem that's harder to solve than easier to solve? Was that, did I, I ask that in a way that makes sense? If you did, okay. I think it depends on the person asking. 
I think if the person asking is very comfortable working on something that's very solvable, then it's going to be an easier right. uh, inducement uh, to join that kind of an organization. Mm -hmm. But y you have to play to type. Uh, yeah. I, I think it would be very difficult for me to, to attract someone by saying, yes, yeah, so and we know exactly what you're going to do all day. I mean, I think I might right. um, not be able to get through the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess another thing we should touch on is uh, in our, in our pre-conversation that we had, um, we talked about the ability to be agile as a leader, as a leader and, and why that helps or is important. So can you talk a little bit about that? And uh, yes. So, and again, I, I think this is something you get used to, that you are comfortable, you become comfortable in situations that would make other people most uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You discover something new. Uh, you discover that you have to change something. And when, when I discover that we need to change something because of some data or some external force, uh, that's great. I, that's a moment of innovation. Mm -hmm. I feel happy about that. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, we're going to get here first. We're going to create something that solves a problem, and most of the world doesn't even know it's a problem yet. And if we're really good at what we do, our users will never know mm -hmm. that we fixed something that other people didn't even think that it was a problem, so they can go do what they need to do, which is go edu get educated. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoy that. I, I really like, and I guess you could call it agility, or you could call it uh, tolerance of change, or mm -hmm. you could even call it pain tolerance, but I, 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 I actually, <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> All right, so as you look forward, what are you most excited about for the near term, for the next year, for the next decade? For the near term, you know, we, we have, products out there that we are proud of with our partners. We feel like we're making a difference in people's lives. Uh, we feel like we're meeting people where they are, not where, where people used to be 20 years ago or 10 years ago before things really became cloud-based and web-based. So we feel good about that. For the, for the next, uh, for the very near term, I'm very excited about uh, some, of the, some of the new things that will be coming out mm -hmm. that build on some of the things we've been able to do. Uh, for the next year or so, I'm excited uh, to see what kind of change we provoke. Uh, with my last company, uh, when, we, when we started that company, nobody, nobody said anything about solid-state batteries, and now you have you know, six, seven automakers talking about integrating solid-state batteries. Um, we went through an era where about, uh, I don't know, three or four dozen battery companies went bankrupt, mm -hmm. including a few bankruptcies in this state, which made it, which made fundraising for that company a little interesting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when I take that thing to the recession. <laughs> and so I'm looking forward uh, to, for, to Amosite instigating some change mm -hmm. in the industry. And then finally in 10 years, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully getting to see happen again what I experienced as a professor on a much smaller scale, which is people saying, when I did that, that changed my course. Hmm. That, those are the, the emails, the phone calls, the lunches, the coffees, the, the engagements with former students that really made me go back. It's like, yeah, that was, that was worth it. That was worth 100-hour work weeks. That was worth it. That was worth it to put that program together. It was totally worth it. When people say, I changed my course because of this, and especially when people say, I became a, a different kind of person. I mean, when I was a professor, I started this energy systems engineering. I've had students tell me, 
years later, and it's, and it's very touching that you know, I went into clean tech because of this, or this, I, I went and did solar because of this, or I work mm -hmm. on EVs because of this. And, uh, then one, and then I'll email the colleagues and say, hey, thanks for teaching that class with me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you realize yeah. that you put something in place that changed somebody's course. So um, I'm very hopeful that that'll be the outcome with Amosite as well. Wow, that sounds great. So um, you have a special way of thinking big. You have a special energy about you that you bring to things. And, uh, and you have a human connection to what you do. So it's been wonderful talking to you. It's really been neat. Thank, Thank you. you. What a nice thing to say. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you.